Chapter 4 The Curse and Justification Sermon 152 preached Monday, 9th of March, 1556, on Deuteronomy 27, verses 24 through 26. Cursed be he who attacks his neighbor secretly, and all the people shall say Amen. Cursed be he who takes a gift to strike down the blood of a guiltless soul, and all the people shall say Amen. Cursed be he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say Amen. We understand from this text that what we spoke of earlier is very true, namely that God intended to teach the people of olden time that it was not enough for them to discharge themselves before men, or to escape blame or punishment here, but that they must look up higher and consider that there is a judgment seat in heaven before which we must one day answer and make our account. That is what we must keep in mind if we are to discharge our duty properly. We may well trick men by putting on a fair countenance, and we may even so order our lives that no man can find any fault in us concerning our outward deeds, and yet all the while, if our hearts are full of wicked lusts, if it grieves us to be held in awe, if we grate our teeth against God, what obedience is that? Assault Therefore, let us note that when this text says, Cursed be he who smites his neighbor secretly, in verse 24, God is not only condemning the faults that come to knowledge before men, but also condemning the crimes that lie hidden. And so, if a man has lived in such a way that he cannot be rebuked by the world, but is rather praised and commended, he must not use that as an occasion to fall asleep, but must continually examine his heart and consider well whether there be any hidden nook or cranny therein. For if such a man is thoughtless and does evil, though men do not perceive it, yet God will always perform the office of judge. And if our hearts reprove us, as St. John says in 1 John 3.20, God sees us even more clearly. So then, this text serves well to humble us. And indeed, we ought to remember one other sentence of St. John, where it is said that whoever hates his brother secretly, even if he conceals his hatred so that it is not perceived, and rather makes a show of love, that man shall not fail to be condemned by God. This is 1 John 3.15. And so you see in effect what we have to bear in mind. Let us not busy our heads about men's reports. Even if a man is well regarded here in this world, yet let him not flatter himself on account of it. Rather, let him summon himself before God and consider whether he be at fault in his heart. Let not men bring before God their opinions and fancies, for all such things will be refused. They will serve no purpose. And therefore let us walk with unfeigned heart before God. For we know that he does not regard the outward appearance, as it is said in 1 Samuel 16.7 but he requires the heart and truth, as it is said in Jeremiah 5.3. And looking at what is said here concerning murders and fighting, we must extend the same to all other crimes. For if God calls to account those who have done any outrage to their neighbors, even though these are not known to the world, do we think that robberies, treasons, frauds, railing, slanders, and the like will pass by unnoticed? So then let us learn that we cannot by any means avoid the hand of God or escape his vengeance if we foster vices in our hearts, though these be not visible to men. 
and so that we may get more benefit for ourselves from this doctrine, let every one of us examine himself properly in his heart when he comes to hear the word of God. For it is proper for us to be reproved inwardly, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.25. Every man, I say, must search his own thoughts and affections to the very bottom. Also, it is the peculiar office of God's word to be a sharp sword, and to separate our thoughts from all our affections and preferences, and to enter even into the marrow of the bones, leaving nothing undiscovered. Hebrews 4.12 Seeing this is so, let us prevent God's judgment and not tarry until he curses us and bans us for the innocent blood that cries out against us. But let every one of us condemn himself as soon as he has offended, and let him be sorry in his heart and beseech God of his infinite goodness and mercy to deliver us from the curse that is denounced against all such as have so misbehaved themselves in secret and have not been convicted thereof before men. Taking Bribes Next we read, Cursed be he who takes a gift to strike down the blood of a guiltless soul. Verse 25. Thus Moses speaks word for word. Nevertheless, the word soul means life. And because the blood is the proper seed of life, it is therefore said the blood of a guiltless soul. Certainly, even if a man is sinful, yet it is not lawful to buy and sell his life. But as I have mentioned to you already, God here has set before us those crimes that are most detestable so that we wake up because we are not sufficiently moved when he speaks of ordinary faults. Such things slip past us, and we think to ourselves that it is not difficult to obtain forgiveness for them. Now, since there is so much laxity in men, therefore in this place God has chosen some offenses that even by nature we ought to abhor. For if the life of an innocent person is bought and sold, it is a horrible matter. Virtually anybody you talk to will grant that such a wicked design ought not be allowed. Thus we can now see God's meaning. But even though this thing is commonly and sufficiently condemned with full mouth, yet men do not cease to put it to far too much use. And for proof of this, look at the practices that are used commonly to oppress the poor and the simple sort. It is true that they are not generally in danger of having their throats cut, but when men harm them in their persons and in their properties, they are still guilty of a form of murder in the eyes of God, and when it comes to the seeking of methods to wrest justice from the innocent, and the practicing of devices against those who seek to live in peace and concord, we find that it is all too common a thing, and therefore this law is no more than necessary. Now it is true enough, as we mentioned before, that at first blush we can say well enough that there is no reason why we should continue in so great and excessive wickedness, and everyone is willing enough to admit that such is against nature. But yet, the common practice and custom is the clean contrary. And therefore, let us note well the teaching here set down, namely that God cannot allow so great a crime to be unpunished, such as the disappointing of the right, whereby the party that has not offended is oppressed against all right and reason. And truly God speaks here also of judges who have been corrupted to oppress a poor man, just as much as he speaks of those who have sold themselves or have set themselves out for hire to murder, beat, or strike men, such as these belligerent ruffians who seek employment as bully boys. All such as these, God utterly condemns in this text. And so under one particular example, he embraces all like crimes. So what we have to gather from all this is that covetousness must never lead us to harm any man. 
we see now that this doctrine extends itself very far. For why are so many frauds, oppressions, outrages, and injuries committed, if it is not the seeking of illicit profit? Men think, I must give some pleasure to the man who is in authority, because he is able to requite me again for it. So if necessary, I for his sake will oppress one and torment another. And afterward, if that is not enough, I must move on to the other kinds of things. So that the matter grows out of all measure. So much the more, then, is it needful for us to mark well this teaching. Cursed shall he be who takes a reward to do men wrong. The fifteenth psalm says the same thing, namely, that if we want to be people of God's household and dwell in his church, we must beware of taking bribes to hurt the innocent. If God banishes all such out of his kingdom and from the company of the faithful, punishing those who have gone about to misbehave themselves after that fashion by setting themselves to sale and to hire through their covetousness, what remains for them but utter cursedness? For once God has disclaimed us and no longer acknowledges us any longer as his, we must be accursed. Where does all our happiness lie? Just where the 15th Psalm says, Happy are those people whose God is the Lord. The way, then, for us to be happy is to be taken by God into his flock. And if he casts us out, then of necessity all kinds of mischief must come upon our heads. Since this is so, let us learn so much the more to restrain ourselves, and let every one of us be contented with what he has. And let us not advance ourselves by unlawful means, lest the profit we have gotten to ourselves become cudgels or lacerations to the poor, whom we shall have wounded by raking, so to ourselves by hook and crook. Therefore, let us learn to have both our hearts and our hands clean from all evil and misdealing, if we wish to be blessed by God and to be numbered among the faithful. Thus you see in effect what this sentence means. The law is one. Now for a conclusion is said, Cursed be he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Verse 26. Here we see even better something I have set before you already, namely that God here meant to seal his whole law in general, not omitting any point of it, even though he has set down only some particular examples of it. The point of this solemnity on Mounts Ebal and Gerizim is that people might know that this law is the rule of perfection, and that God, the author thereof is not to be dallied with, but rather this law is to be received with all reverence. Yea, every man ought to protest with his mouth that there is good reason for God to be obeyed, and that all transgressors of his will should condemn themselves without making any excuses, and willingly acknowledge themselves worthy of death and all misfortune, should they not submit themselves obediently to the service of God. For this cause, therefore, it is said, Cursed be he who does not confirm the words of this law. He is not here speaking of one or two commandments, or of some part of them, but of the whole law, every part and parcel thereof without exception. And indeed, we ought to think of how St. James says that he who has forbidden to steal has also forbidden to commit adultery, and that he who has forbidden to murder has also forbidden false witnessing. We must not rend God's justice in pieces. In whatever way we offend, we violate God's law and despise his majesty. But he will be acknowledged in his law throughout, in all points, and not just in part, as I have told you before. Seeing it is so, 
Let us mark that God has knit his commandments together to show us that it is not for man to put them asunder, as we see many do who covenant with God to abstain from some one sin, and think to themselves that they are discharged when they can say, Well, at least I have not offended at all points. I have indeed committed some sins, but in all the rest I have obeyed God. The thief will boast that he is not a whoremonger. The murderer will say that he is not a swearer. The whore-hunter will likewise have his excuse that he does not transgress in other things, that he is not cruel and such like. But what is all this? As I said before, God will not have his law to be cut up after that fashion into pieces and fragments. It is righteousness that consists of ten commandments knit together in one bond. God therefore must be hearkened unto, both in the first word and in the last, as well as in the fourth as in the second. Since this is so, let us remember what is said here, that God will have us confirm the words contained in his law. So, it is not enough for man to have discharged himself of some piece of it. God will not content himself with that, neither will he take such service for payment, but he will have men to give themselves wholly unto him. And with what condition? Lord, seeing that your will is contained in your law, let our lives be conformed thereunto for we do not have the liberty to put them asunder. Also, as I have declared before, it is too gross a folly to think that we have a good will to honor him, and in the meantime despise him in one thing or another. Active Obedience As it is said here, to confirm the words of this law by doing them. Here Moses shows us the way we are to accept the doctrine delivered to us in the name of God. It is not in the hearing of the ear, or in the confessing of the mouth. Though they are true and right, they are not enough. For all is but hypocrisy if our lives are repugnant to it. And if we fall out according to this saying of St. Paul, that while we confess with our mouths that we believe in God, we deny him in our lives. For this reason, let us mark well that the true trial of our faith and obedience is to have our lives answerable to his law, and to show by our doings that we have not been taught in vain. That is what we have to note from Moses' words, that we must confirm the words of this law by doing them, yet by performing them not only by affirming that they are good and right, for that is but a small matter, but also by straining ourselves to serve God by applying our whole endeavor in that way, and by fashioning all our works according to His will. That is the good confirmation. That is the way for us to affirm that God is righteous and that he has given us a good, sure, and infallible rule, such as we ought to observe. Now we see in effect the contents of this sentence, from which we must understand that God has not enjoined us a chopped-up obedience, but he will have us to receive his law to the uttermost in all points without exception. We see likewise that it is not enough for us to say that God has not commanded anything that is not righteous, but that we must also show an accord and consent thereto in our lives by framing them after all his commandments. The curse extends to all men. Moreover, it is well for us now to see what condition we should be in if this curse were to be visited upon us. Certain it is that here all men are denounced accursed, and this curse means the same thing as if it were said that all are damned, all are lost or all are forsaken. Take, for example, the most righteous persons that ever have lived in the world, and by this sentence they deserve to be cast away. 
Neither Abraham nor any of the patriarchs, neither David nor all the prophets, can be exempted from this condemnation. God, by his prophet, in Ezekiel 14.14, declares Job, Daniel, and Samuel as righteous, and in a manner blameless, and yet even they also must fall under this curse. And as for David, he confesses it with his own mouth, saying, in Psalm 143.2, Lord, do not enter into judgment with your servant, for no man living shall be justified in your sight. There David is speaking not of the common people only, but is putting himself in the same category. It is true that in other places he declares that it was his whole desire to serve God, and that his heart tended that way. All the same, he acknowledged that he came far short of discharging himself, or of having such perfections as were requisite. If he admitted himself guilty as much as other men, what shall we do? But here is a dreadful sentence, and such a one as ought to make the hairs stand stiff on our heads. Cursed shall he be, who does not perform all the words of this law. Who says this? It is God himself. It is, then, a definitive sentence, such as admits of no appeal beyond itself. God will have all men confess it so, yea, he will have every man confess it with his own mouth. What then remains for us to do? Where is the hope of salvation? From this we see that if we have only the Ten Commandments of the Law, we should be utterly undone and perish. It is necessary for us to have recourse to His mercy, which outstrips His justice, as St. James says in James 2.13. God's goodness, then, must be manifest toward us to deliver us from the damnation all of us would experience if this curse should stand and there be no grace to overcome it. And certainly St. Paul in Galatians 3.10 proves by this text that we cannot become righteous by our works, but that it is needful for us to be made righteous by faith alone, that is to say, by the mere grace of God, because every one of us stands condemned if God enters into account with us. Why? Cursed shall he be who does not perform all the words of the law. Suppose a man replies, Yes. But if a man does perform them, why should he not become righteous thereby? And why should he not be paid his hire by God according to his deserts? But St. Paul presupposes that no such man has ever been found, and none can possibly be found who performs all the words of the law and everything God has commanded. Indeed, it is a common saying, God's law is not impossible to fulfill. At this present day, when the papists argue against us, this statement is regarded as an invincible argument to prove free will. Why should God have commanded us to love Him with all our hearts if we're not able to do it? It is repugnant to think that God would exact more of men than they are capable of, for in so doing, He would be unjust and cruel. In this way do the papists reason. But St. Paul says to the contrary, Cursed shall he be who does not perform all the commandments. Galatians 3.10 and he presupposes, as I said before, that no man does perform them, and that it is impossible to find any such man. From this he draws his conclusion, all mankind is undone if they enter into examination of their works, so that men must be punished according to their deserts. It is necessary for God to cast them off and utterly to damn them. And so we have an excellent lesson in this text. It is just as if God had struck down all the children of Adam with one blow of a club and had thundered down upon them to fling them into a dungeon of damnation that they might perceive that in themselves they are all damned and perishing. But we need not tarry here, 
For once God has humbled us, he goes on to give us the means fit for deliverance from condemnation, as we shall see more clearly later on. The Errors of Rome But before we proceed further, let us consider how the papists deceive themselves. They see well enough that no man performs the law of God, and even though they come up with the fantastic arguments I have already mentioned, saying that God has not ordered anything that is not in the power of men to perform, yet they are convicted even by their own experiences that all men are sinners, that all men have done amiss, as the Holy Scriptures also tell us, that there is no one living upon the earth, as Solomon says, who does not sin, and that all men have need of the grace of God. The papists then, although they see this clearly, still wrangle about it, saying that this is true only before we are regenerated by God's Spirit. Nevertheless, if they be pressed, they must confess in the second place that even the holiest of people are still not perfect, and that there is some frailty in them. And even if they will not confess it, yet the Holy Scriptures show it, and every man feels it in himself. Now then, why do the papists so firmly insist on the righteousness of works, and maintain that we well deserve to be recompensed, that we earn or purchase the kingdom of heaven? How does it come to pass that they are so brutish and so beastly? It is because they imagine that even if we do not perform the whole law, yet nevertheless we still can earn merit or desert, and this they term a righteousness in part. They say that all men do indeed sin, true enough, and that in this respect they are at fault before God, and well deserve to be condemned if God is rigorous. Nevertheless, they also maintain that when they have the righteousness in part, that is to say, when they do partly obey the law, such doing is worthy of acceptance and worthy to be put into the account and reckoning, and this is what they glory in so much. After that manner, then, there are deservings in men, though they may not perform the whole law. This is one point. Again, they have another devilish imagination, which is that when they have erred, they can make amends to God by their own satisfactions and can ransom themselves so that they go scot-free, at least in their own minds. They will well admit, in a word, we are in danger, but it does not follow that we have no means of escape and of making God accept in exchange whatever we bring to Him. On this they have founded all their good devotions, as they term them, such as pilgrimages, masses, and yermandies, with all their free-will devotions, such as fastings and diverse other things, going so far as even to put their shrift among their works of satisfaction. Again, the prattling of some paternosters, the babbling before a puppet, the chanting of some mass, the setting up of some tapers, and such other things, are all of them regarded as recompenses that will cause God to regard them as faultless. And because they see themselves as overstocked with such things, they forge petty inventions with which to play with God. And therefore, they have invented venial sins, so that if a man is tempted to wicked deeds, yet he is not regarded as having offended God until he becomes willing and perfectly contented to the performance thereof. If a man is tempted in himself, moved to do evil, all this is no deadly sin, say the papists. It is but venial sin and one sprinkle of holy water is enough to wash it clean away. But to the contrary, we see that it is said, O Israel, what is it that thy God requires of thee, but that thou shouldst love him with all thy heart, in Deuteronomy 10.12. Here you see what the righteousness of the law is, that a man love God with all his heart. 
but he that has offended is accursed, and all of us offend. So then, are not all of us in danger of death? There is no man upon whom God does not pronounce this curse. Now, when men have thought evil, so they have been provoked to do wickedly. It is no sin, say the papists. They are righteous still for all that. See how the papists do wholly mock God, in that they think by some fond ceremony, or by a mea culpa, they are discharged of their sins, and thus make nothing of them. These are the loopholes they use to mock God, as they would a young babe, which is a dreadful thing. Yet it is put to use in all their schools. We, on our part, dare not think after this fashion, but rather we must keep in mind what the apostles say. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10.31. Therefore, we must not ever break the bonds and yoke he has laid in our necks. We must not act like wild beasts. We must not think of beguiling him by some hypocritical show of obedience, having all the while no real purity of intention to serve him at all. For in the end, he will show that his vengeance shall light upon all such as have lived as hypocrites and double-minded deceivers before his face. What shall we do then? We must straightforwardly reject this pretense of righteousness in part, which the papists have invented. It is a device of Satan. Indeed, even they themselves will admit that we cannot merit by any inward worthiness that is in our works. They say that all the worth of our works comes only from this, that God is acquainted with us, so that when men have done all that is possible, yet there will always be some fault that can be found with their works when they come before God. Not that all papists are of this mind. There is not one in a thousand that thinks this way. But there is here a far finer and more subtle doctrine of popery, which is that works are not worthy of themselves, but because of the promise of the law. But what is the promise? Let us come to the point. Behold, God offers himself to all men, and says that whoever performs the law shall be blessed, and on the other hand they shall be cursed who step away from it. Thus you see that the perfect righteousness is the performing of the law. But as I have told you already, no man performs it, and therefore God is quit of his promise toward us. Seeing that we, on our side, fail in the condition, he for his part owes us nothing. After the same manner also speaks to St. Paul, saying, If righteousness depends on the works of the law, then is the promise null and void? Romans 4.14 St. Paul in this place touches the matter to the quick. After all, who is it that has so performed the law? And so consequently we shall all be damned if we ground ourselves upon our works. After that manner he speaks here in Romans 4, and also to the Galatians in Galatians 3. And so let us mark that God denounces all of us to condemnation when he says, Cursed be he who does not perform all the things contained in the book of my law. As for this carrying on that the papists call satisfactions, they are but mockeries. God wishes to be served by true obedience. Moreover, the releasing of our sins is freely bestowed, as the Holy Scripture teaches. And so for all the satisfactions, as they term them, that men have come up with, they serve no purpose nor does God accept any of them. We can start by coming up with our own ideas out of our brains. He refuses every bit of it. Therefore, let us hold to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that we are washed and cleansed by his blood, and that this is the only remedy that God sets forth for us. Salvation in Christ Alone 
Thus, we have two things to mark. The one is that if we should be judged by the law of God, there would not be needing anything more than this one sentence to damn us all, yea, even the holiest man that ever lived. For no man has ever satisfied God's law, and therefore are we all condemned. For if the holy fathers who had an angelic holiness in this world were all the same at fault before God, what will become of us? Let us now make a comparison between us and them. How far removed are we from the holiness of Abraham, the purity of David, the rectitude of Job, and the perfection of Daniel? When these stand condemned, where do we stand? Let us then learn to pull in our horns and let every one of us keep his mouth shut, as St. Paul says in Romans 3.19, when he brings us to the righteousness of faith and to the mercy of God. What we need to keep in mind, then, is that God has removed all self-righteousness from us, to rid us of all presumption and pride, so that we should no longer pretend to come to account with him, to bind him to us, that we should willingly condemn ourselves. That is the first thing. Now for this we have to consider the remedy that God has left, which is that we can be righteous by means of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he has delivered us from the curse that was due against us, and for that reason he was hanged upon a tree, as St. Paul says in Galatians 3.13. We have seen already in this series, in the 21st chapter, that as many as were hanged upon a tree were all accursed, Deuteronomy 21.23. Now, when God made that law, Did he not know what he had already ordained concerning his only son, who was to be hanged upon a tree? Surely it was an unchangeable decree, made even before the foundation of the world. Seeing this is so, we are redeemed from the curse of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we must now match this sentence with the other that we saw in the 21st chapter. It is said here, Cursed shall be the man who does not perform all these sayings. And you see clearly that when we do not perform them, we are condemned and as good as damned. But we must embrace with this our Lord Jesus Christ, who is cursed for our sakes, so that if this curse is not in vain, we must now be set free. What a thing it would be if the Son of God should be cursed without cause, and yet no benefit rebound to us. He who is the foundation of all blessedness should be accursed, and yet we know not why except that it is worthless. Now then, seeing that the curse Jesus Christ suffered in his own person is in vain and purposeless, let us realize that by the same means we are delivered before God, and so you see how we ought to make these two texts agree. Furthermore, we know that he became subject to the law, Galatians 4.4, so that he might perform all manner of obedience to the full, as it were, in our own persons. And the righteousness he has in himself is at this day credited to us, as if every one of us had discharged himself before God. The way, then, for us to be delivered from our cursedness is this. After we have been ashamed, and as it were plunged in despair, we may take heart again, being assured of our salvation, and offer ourselves before the amnesty of our God with full assurance that he will accept us as his children, and also love us. And moreover, that seeing our Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law, and not failed in any point or jot thereof, Now we are clothed again with his righteousness, and the same is credited to us as our own. And therefore, let us go boldly before God, and call upon him as our Father. Let us not ascribe purity to our own works, or imagine that God owes us anything, or pretend to bring any desert or merit of our own. But being utterly empty, 
Let us call upon God to vouchsafe not only to fill up what is partially lacking in us by means of our Lord Jesus Christ, but to give us that righteousness of which we are utterly destitute and unfurnished. And let us mark further, that when we are once thus received into favor, then will our works also be accepted. The way for us, then, to serve God to his liking is that being justified by faith, that is to say, having obtained forgiveness of our sins, because daily and all the time of our lives we have need of it, and also having recourse to God's reconciliation with us, of his own free goodness by means of the death, suffering, and sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ offered up to him, having these things, the way to serve God to his liking is to do so with this attitude of faith. For then shall we do well, and then will he accept the service we yield to him. And apart from this, we have no faith in Jesus Christ. But when we endeavor to serve God, even though there may be things wrong, and our affections turn us now one way and now another, yet God does not take our lives. Why? Because our sins are not imputed to us. It is true that this curse will stand in force in full rigor, but behold, Christ is our ransom and pays for us, delivering us from our cursedness and making satisfaction to God his Father. For we know that his death and suffering are accepted as the price and ransom of our salvation, that by such means we should be reconciled to God. You see then, that on the one hand it behooves us to feel our own cursedness, that we may be afraid of God's judgments, and that on the other hand we must take courage, not doubting, but seeing that since our Lord Jesus Christ answers for us, we shall be received for his sake. And God will accept us together with our works even though they are not as good as they should be, but have some blots and blemishes in them, so that they deserve to be condemned and utterly rejected. In brief, the faithful, being justified by the grace of God, have along with it this benefit and privilege, that God accepts their works and does not charge them with this curse that they have deserved. That is how we ought to put this text into practice. Morning and Rejoicing But I have told you that on the one side we must mourn and be afraid at the sight of our cursedness before God, and that on the other side we must trust in the grace Jesus Christ offers us. For if we should become careless because God has forgiven our sins, what a thing that would be! We would wind up in the same mess men get into when they think to render only partial obedience to God. Now then, it is needful for us to be sorry for all our sins, and if we detect any vice in ourselves, we must not permit it to reign. It is true that we come short. I say not in one part only, but in all. There is no point in the law wherein we do not fail. That man who thinks himself free of envy and to be a despiser of worldly goods, surely he still has some other affection in his heart that holds him back in the world. He that is chaste and honest in his body still has some vanities that will carry him away. He who does not foster any hatred or rancor in his heart is not so clear of all wicked affection that he lives as perfectly as he ought. In brief, we shall be found guilty, not in one or two points only, but in all, so that there is not any part or piece of the law from which God might not condemn us. And therefore, as I said, seeing we perceive such imperfection in ourselves, we must not stand in our own conceits, but mourn before God. And having mourned, we must endeavor to give ourselves over to him, praying him to increase us in the power and grace of his Holy Spirit, that we may manfully fight against our sins, so as to subdue them, overcome them, and get the upper hand of them, 
to triumph over them once we are clean rid of them. Thus you see how we ought to proceed in this affair. And this ought to make the faithful rejoice, that although they perceive their own imperfections, yet they must not cease on that account to embrace God's promises with gladness, assuring themselves that they will not be disappointed. And why? Because they enjoy all those things in our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom and by whose means the curse that was due to them is done away. You see then that on the one side it is needful for the faithful to be cast down utterly, and yet on the other side that they be lifted up again in our Lord Jesus Christ, because they know that if they look for what they do not have in themselves, they will find it if they seek it at the place God sends them. And therefore, let us not beguile ourselves any longer with the fancies of Satan which reign in popedom, which lead us to offer our own merits to God, and to covenant with him as if we had performed his law. Let us assure ourselves that on our part, all the covenants that are made in the law are utterly vain, and that all the promises that are conditional on our good deeds and holy behavior will be unavailable to us, and never come to effect, unless we resort to this free promise, quote, Whoever believes that Jesus Christ died for our sins, and that God by his power has raised him again to make us righteous, believing the same in his heart and confessing it with our mouths, shall be saved. This statement is, of course, what St. Paul brings us to in Romans 9.10, which is the passage that will give us the understanding of this place. The righteousness of the law shows us that we are all accursed, and that there is not any way to save us as long as we remain there. What are we to do, then, that we may have access to God? Let us with our hearts believe unto righteousness, and with our mouths confess unto salvation, that we put our whole trust in Him who has acquitted us towards God his Father. And let us embrace the righteous obedience that He has yielded unto God, and likewise His sustaining of the curse that was due to us, so that He might free us from it. Prayer Now let us fall down before the majesty of our good God with acknowledgement of our sins praying him to make us feel them better than we have done before, that we may be more and more touched with the true repentance that mortifies all our fleshly affections. May he draw us from the delights of this world, and lift us up into a true desire of giving ourselves wholly to his law, so that we may daily profit thereby, knowing that the true perfection of all faithful folk is to know how far they are from perfection. May he do this to the end that all mouths may be stopped, and none acknowledged as righteous except God. May it be that when Christ's righteousness once shines upon us, we shall not be bereft of it, assuring ourselves that therein lies our perfection. May it please him to grant this grace not only to us, but also to all people and nations of the earth, etc.